0: Welcome to Episode 2 of the Boldly Go Podcast. Boy, do I have a power-packed show for you today. I got to interview Vicky's husband, who is also known as Dr. Derwin Gray. And if you have never heard of Derwin Gray, boy, are you in for a treat. I got to meet him about two years ago at an event where I was speaking. And I'm so glad that I didn't know at the time who he was or that he was in the audience because it would have added a whole lot more pressure to my speech. That I didn't need at the time, but Dr. Derwin Gray has two doctorates. He's a former NFL player. He's a pastor of Transformation Church and an extremely powerful and eloquent voice when it comes to racism, racial issues, healing, hope, etc. He really managed to pack a ton into 40-minute conversation, and I will tell you, he took me to church, and he's going to take you to church as well. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Derwin Gray. Welcome Pastor Derwin Gray to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here and to see your face. It's been what, a minute, maybe a year and a half or so
1: since yes. we met. Yes, yes. Thank you so much and congratulations on your podcast. You have so much on so many levels to encourage people with and to equip them. And so I'm just I'm just honored to be a part of it and this is like podcast number 2, right?
0: Yes, yes, you are my second podcast guest. Let's so, yeah, go. I'm, no, I, I, I'm really, really thrilled that you're here and you have so much great insight to share into the state of things today in the world and, and the role of, of the church and the community and, in making things better. So I'm really excited for everybody to hear from you. But for those, you know, five to six people who don't know uh, what you do, you know, give us a little bit of info about your journey. You know, how did you get from, you know, where you were as a kid to where you are now?
1: Yeah, yeah. So so I'll start with uh, I am Vicky's husband. Vicky and I met in college way back in 1990 when I was a freshman. So we've been together for 31 years, married almost 29 years. We have two adult children, Presley and Jeremiah. Um, I come from San Antonio, Texas. Uh, I grew up in the hood. We were poor, not poor, because we couldn't afford <laughs> the O and the R. Uh, <laughs> my parents struggled with various issues, so my grandmother and grandfather primarily raised me. Uh, we didn't go to church. We had a form of spirituality, but like what I understand Jesus to be now, I had no clue then. And so the human heart is pre-wired to worship. Uh, worship is not just singing songs. Worship is where do I draw my affirmation, identity, and mission from? And so yeah. for me at about age 13, football became my God because if I played good, I got affirmation. It told me who I was, and it gave me a mission, get out of the hood. So I was either going to go to the Marines or get a football scholarship. I got a football scholarship to Brigham Young University, and uh, that's where I met my wife my freshman year. had a legendary career there, went on to get drafted by the NFL. And so making it to the NFL for me was, okay, this is my heaven because the money I get, is going to fix my family and their problems. Mm. And by the way, I had no idea how much taxes were. And <laughs> right. it, was, it was the first time that I met this person named FICA. And I was like, who is FICA and why are they taking my money? I don't know this. Right. Guy. And so the money was not as much as I thought. And the money didn't fix the problems like I thought. Mm. And so, around year three, I'm finding myself like I'm a team captain. I've got the girl. I've got the cars. I've got the fame. But underneath all of that, I couldn't forgive myself for things that I had done. Um, I couldn't forgive my dad for not being around. Mm. I knew I was living on borrowed time because the NFL stands for not for long. So who not would I be? My, yeah, who would I be when my NFL career is over? Also, I knew there were things I needed to be forgiven from. And the Mm -hmm. more I tried to do good things to to wash it off, it was like the more it revealed like you can't. And then I couldn't love my wife the way she deserved to be loved. And what I mean by, by that is this is when I was very young. It dawned on me, if you let people get close to you, they hurt you. Don't ever let anybody get close and you won't get hurt. And so I went into marriage with like kind of this invisible force field of I'll only let you in so much because my whole life experience was disappointment, abandonment, letdown. And so when you don't have God's love to change that, that's how you survive, right? Mm -hmm. And so even though I was on top of the world, it, it was like, no, man, there's some stuff missing. But God in his grace put a teammate with the cults in the locker room. Every day after practice, he would take a shower, dry off, and wrap a towel around his waist. Then he'd get his Bible and he would walk to my teammates' lockers and he'd ask them this question Do you know Jesus? Wow. And line, I'm like, Bro, do you know you're half naked? Right. <laughs> no, so it was the weirdest thing. I'm like, Is a half naked black man walking around talking about, Do you know Jesus with his Bible and white towel? So, wow. the veterans, so the veterans on the team said, don't pay any attention to him because that's the naked preacher. His real name was Steve Grant. But anyway, I'm sitting in my locker. So it was just it, an accept. it was just a normal thing it was normal. to them that, that he did. It was, it was as normal as drinking water. Wow. So one day I'm sitting in my locker and I see him coming towards me and I turn around to indicate I don't want to have a conversation. Next thing I know, He's tapping me on the back and he says, uh, "Rookie D. Gray, do you know Jesus?" And I was like, "Well, I'm a good person." And he said, "Well, good compared to who?" Right. And he 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 said, "According to the Bible, only God is good, and all of us need God's grace." And that began this five year process of going through this existential crisis of needing forgiveness of needing to let people love me and me love them. I started experiencing some football injuries. I started recognizing that I had an unhealthy dependence on football. And on August 2nd, 1997, uh, it was my fifth year in the NFL. We were in what's called training camp. And we were in Anderson, Indiana at Anderson University. And after lunchtime, I remember walking back to my dorm room and I just felt just... Just like a Grand Canyon-sized hole in my soul. Went to my dorm room, called my wife on the phone, and I said, "I want to be more committed to you, and I want to be committed to Jesus." And the best way I can describe it is: for the first time in my life, I knew that I was loved. Mm.
0: What did and Vicky say when you said that?
1: She was silent. She was mm-hmm. just she. She had had her. Conversion experience about six months before me. And we didn't know anything about Christianity. All she knew is, I love Jesus. My life is changing and I want his life to change too. So she was silent and we're just both silent like in that moment. And uh, she was like, okay. And I was like, okay. And then, you know, we said our good, goodbyes. But for three nights um, after practice, I would just be in my dorm room crying because I was like, how could someone like Jesus? love somebody like me, knowing all that I've done. And it was like God said, well, that's the point. God doesn't love you because of what you've done. God loves you because He is love, and you can't make yourself good enough for Him. He came because we're not good enough. He came because we're messed up. He came because we couldn't fix ourselves. Jesus is the carpenter that forgives us and makes us new. And so anyway, that was my fifth year in the NFL. Played one more year, hurt my knee, was reading the Bible, and um, my wife was reading the Bible, and both of us just sensed like, we're done with the NFL. My agent said, well, what are you going to do? I was like, I don't know. And I got invited to speak at a youth event in the fall of 1999. I argued and I cried with God. And I said, why are you sending me to go speak? I'm a compulsive stutterer. You know, speaking is painful for me. I can't do it. And I sensed God say, listen, if I can raise my son from the dead, I can raise your tongue to talk. I went and spoke. A lot of people were moved. And I just started getting invitations to speak all over the country. And after about five years, both my wife and I asked this question. We said, why is it that when we used to party in nightclubs, it was black people, white people, Asian people, Latino people. But when we joined Jesus's club, the church, it was white church, black church. It was a segregated Ooh, that's, church. That's deep. And we sense God saying, well, I want you to do something about that. I want you to start a church that looks like the New Testament Church, a multi-ethnic church that is captivated by the love and grace of Jesus. So, that's how we got here, then I met you.
0: <laughs> well, that that is an amazing journey and for a lot of people I think to hear that you went from being an NFL player to a pastor yeah. Uh, it sounds like a really bold, risky move, but I don't think that that, you know, that summary doesn't encompass the years in between, you know, from when you left the NFL and all the five years of speaking before you finally became a pastor. Yeah. Did yeah. you experience resistance? You know, was, the, you know, was there, were there people and, and things in your life trying to convince you that being a pastor was not the way to go?
1: Well, actually, Christians were trying to convince me to be a pastor. And I was like, no way. Are you kidding? I'm like, listen people have issues. You know how I know? Because I'm one. And (laughs) let me just go in and speak and then leave. And for years I fought being a pastor and here's why. Even though I'd become a follower of Christ, there were still some doors in my life that I would not allow Jesus to access. The first one was this, God, if I become a pastor, I'll love these people and they'll leave me. The other one was, Lord, I lose my wallet and my keys once a week. How in the world am I going to lead a church? And so I was insecure in my ability and God just lovingly wore me down. And he said, Derwin, I don't call the qualified. I qualify the call. I don't call you because you got it together. I call you because I'm going to get you together. And so I had to deal with with that. The second thing was, is when we talked about, hey, in the New Testament, there's these words, Jews and Gentile. We know that a Jew is a Jewish person. A Gentile was everybody else. And so one of the miracles of the early church is that when Jesus rose from the dead, he took enemies, Jews and Gentiles, and made them family and friends through forgiveness of sins. And so one of the things you hear around Transformation Church is this, Jesus not only forgives our sins, but he gives us a family with different colored skins. Mm. And we would share our vision of what we thought the New Testament was saying. And the pushback didn't come from non-Christians. Non-Christians were like, that's a great idea. I'd go to a church like that. The pushback Mm. came from Christians. right? And underneath a lot of that What we found was racism. We found a colorblind ideology. Colorblind says, well, I don't see color. And my response is, well, God didn't make a mistake. He made us our colors and cultures that were all made in the image of God. This harmonious mosaic displays the beauty of God. And so he doesn't want our ethnicities erased. He wants them Embraced in Jesus, that we display the beauty of Jesus together. But what we mm. found was a lot of racism and a lot of hatred. I mean, I had white pastors saying, "Well, if you if I do what you're saying, I'm afraid I'm afraid white men will leave the church because their daughters may marry black men." Black pastors said, "You you can't trust white people; they'll never follow black men's leadership." And I'm mm. hearing all these excuses. But above all that, I heard God's voice and said, if I did it then, I can do it now. I just need somebody to trust me.
0: Wow. So, well, when you, when you bring up racism, you know, back in the early church, I would tend to think that, you know, even as, as much as it's affecting our country today, this isn't new historically on the earth,
1: No, right? I mean, there's
0: a history here of racism all over the world. And so, you know, where do you think that comes from?
1: Okay. So, and I'm so glad you brought that up racism must be treated like every other sin. Jesus went to the cross to die for sinners. That's all of us, right? And racism is a sin. Racism basically says this, my group is better than your group. And God made us all equally in the image of God. And when we become Christians, it's even deeper because we are brothers and sisters. Now, here's where the problem came in specifically in the United States of America. This is where I wrote my doctoral thesis on. In the United States of America, Christianity set comfortably with slavery and racism for most of its history. And the reason why is there were economics There was also fear of of pastors of, well, if I preach against this, no one's going to be in my church. Mm. And so 90% of black denominations in America, like if you see a black denominational church, 90% of those churches exist because of racism in the white church. The black church only exists because racism existed. Wow. And even to this very day, what's happened now is, When you teach people, believe in Jesus, you won't go to hell. Heaven is where you're gonna go. You can still keep your racist attitudes. But when you teach people, no, Jesus not only forgave your sins, he gave you brothers and sisters with different colored skins. And as you love each other on earth, it's a picture of his kingdom coming to earth. And then when we do die and we have our resurrected bodies in the new heavens and new earth, it's every nation, tribe, and tongue. So in the present, We learn to prepare for eternity, Mm. which is a diverse eternity. But how many times have you heard that preached in your life? Only when you say it. (laughs) And so, and you and I, you you know, and so if it's hardly ever preached, even though it's a dominant theme throughout the Bible, you're going to get disciples who don't see that nor want to see that. And so, what I'm saying is, if Jesus really did do what he did, this means this, Missy, you and I are brother and sister. Somebody mess with you, they're messing with me. Amen. We have to, but but what we do is, is we allow politics, racial histories to get in the way of our siblingship in Christ. And so this is really a discipleship issue It's an awareness issue. It's also an issue of not allowing the elephant or the donkey to trump the lamb. Hmm. Did you did you catch that? Oh yes.
0: I heard it. I'm picking up what you're laying down. You're exactly
1: right. And so when when the kingdom of God affluences us, it how you vote is secondary to where your allegiance is. Because there are good reasons on both sides that people vote but where's your primary allegiance? When hmm. our primary allegiance is to Jesus, loving your neighbor as you love yourself. It's not a suggestion. Loving your neighbor as you love yourself means this. Love is sacrificial. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is generous. Love is forgiving. Love is life-giving. Love looks like the cross and resurrection of Jesus. That's, that's God's heart and His aim by His grace. And so when we talk about diversity and ethnic reconciliation, what we're really talking about is learning to truly be human.
0: So in you have a new book that's out, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church. And in that book, you talk about the fact that we cannot choose the situation that we are born into. Mm-hmm. So How do you think that that, you know, when we talk about racism on a community and a national and worldwide level, but individually, how does the situation you were born into potentially affect a racist attitude or belief you might have? And how how do how do we change that?
1: Yeah. So every human being is born spiritually dead. That's Ephesians 2.1. All of us are born broken. And as a result of that brokenness, that will flesh itself out in various ways. Number two, Ephesians 6.12, there are dark powers and principalities. There's a dark spiritual world that wants to divide us, right? Therefore, Jesus comes to make us spiritually alive. Jesus lives in us to remove those old negative thoughts and give us his thoughts. The Bible says, and be renewed by the transforming of your mind. God is on a mission To empower us to see people the way he sees them. What we say at Transformation Church is this: treat everyone like Jesus died for them because he did. Because he did. Mm -hmm. Now, let me give you this illustration. When Jesus was born, he came into a first-century Greco-Roman world in Palestine that was dominated by Roman oppression. Jesus was a ethnic minority oppressed by Gentiles. Jesus would have grown up seeing Jewish men hang on crosses. Mm. Crucifixion was so bad that no Roman male citizen could be crucified. Roman citizens had greater privileges than Jews. Mm-hmm. So you had a systemic injustice. You you had races. All the stuff we got now... We have them, but what did Jesus do? First, Jesus goes to the Jewish temple and he has a holy fit. He says, this is a house of prayer for all people, Jew and non-Jews, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. So he wrecked shop. When Jesus fed 5,000 on one side of the Sea of Galilee and 4,000 on the other side, one side was Jewish, one side was Gentile. The first person Jesus told that he was the Messiah was a Samaritan woman. So he overturns sexism and racism. He tells a story of what does it look like to love your neighbor? Well, it looks like a good Samaritan. The early church picks up on this inclusive and beautiful nature of ethnic reconciliation, but also female empowerment also classism is crucified as well. That's what the Mm. kingdom of God looks like. It looks like at the foot of the cross, we are all God's children, one in Christ, learning to love each other. The only time we should ever look down on another human being is when we are extending a hand down to lift them up.
0: Mm, wow, that is so good. And, and I think you touched on an important point there, because I think the, there's a prevailing impression that racism, for the most part, deals with whites and blacks, but it can be all other different kinds of races, okay. but it also can be different socioeconomic statuses. And so, mm-hmm. you know, help us understand how we might be unwittingly playing a part in that.
1: Yeah. OK, so let me give an example. So when you talk about the sin of racism, we we see it individually. Okay, individuals can be racist, but structurally, systemically, only the majority culture has power to put in structural racism. For example, an easy one, slavery. That's that's easy. Um, Jim Crow. That's easy. Blacks and whites at one time couldn't drink out of the same water fountains. That's easy. The harder ones to see is sentencing in a court of law. Right. A harder one to see is when someone poor gets arrested and they're not even guilty, but they plead guilty because the lawyer that they have is provided by the court and they're terrible. And it's like, well, I better plead guilty for three years instead of going to court to get 50 years. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether Mm -hmm. it's um, a practice called redlining where cities were built and wherever the red line was, that's only where minorities could live. Where we look at housing and lending, the way that wealth is passed down in our country is through home ownership. Well, it was hard for black people to get loans to own homes, right? Right. But also, we see this in the church, too. For example, in some circles, pastors will say, particularly white pastors, well, Dr. King, I'm not sure he was a Christian. He may have had affairs. But yet, for Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, famous white theologians who owned slaves— they won't question their salvation. If a right. black person writes a theology book, that's black theology. But if a white person writes it, that's just theology. Wow. Mm. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, wow, Derwin, you're so theologically a sound. And I'm like, why wouldn't I have two doctors, one honorary, one earned, like I'm a doctor in New Testament. Yeah. So sometimes it could be a compliment, but sometimes it's like, well, I actually had a guy say, I've never heard a black preacher preach like you. And I said, well, you haven't listened to enough of us then. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it, it shows its face in a lot of places. Now, here's something that's really important. And I'm learning this because half of my family's white. 55% of our church is white. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. For my white brothers and sisters, when people of color bring up past atrocities in American history, it is not because we don't love America. It is not because we want you to feel guilty. It's because, one, we want justice, but two, we want you to look back at history and empathize with us, sympathize with us, then lock arms with us in the present to say, how can we make a better world.
0: Yes. Because
1: we are Jesus' people.
0: Hmm. That's so good. And yes, I, I, man, you are laying down a word today and, and I think it's something that everybody listening needs to hear. You know, you're definitely educating us about things that we might not realize we are blind to, you know, and, and, and folks, if you could pick up a copy of, of building a multi-ethnic church, it, it's, it's so eye opening. You know, one of the things you talked about in there that I had never, I mean, I guess I had always realized it was a thing, but never sat down and gave it serious thought was paternalism. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about paternalism, yeah. what is it? How do you recognize it and how do you fix it?
1: Yeah, yeah let, let, let me let me give you an illustration. So often I will have uh, younger millennial white Christians, you know I mean they're my spiritual children. I love them, many of them I've led to the Lord, they're a part of our church and they'll say, pastor, we need to go to the inner city and help those people And I was like, man. Not only do we need to go to the inner city, but we also need to go to Wall Street, because last I Mm. checked, it was not Pookie, it was not Jose, it was not Shaniqua who caused the subprime lending fiasco that put America in a deep, deep depression. Wow. Those bankers on Wall Street. So being poor does not equate to a lack of godliness, and being rich does not equate to higher moral ethics. Oftentimes, the moral ethics of the wealthy who can subvert the system, I'm not going to name any names, but my goodness. So let's be careful that we don't equate a lack of godliness with a small bank account and Mm -hmm. godliness with a big bank account. So paternalism is also what white liberal progressives will will do as well. It's like, well, we've got to help these people. and, 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 And it's almost like you know, minorities can't think for themselves. You know, it's almost like, and I'm sure you've experienced this as a corporate executive in a tech world, as a female, at one point in time, I'm sure you were like a unicorn and, well, we got to help her. And like, no, you're the expert. You're the one that takes a company from nine people to billions. And and so we just have to be careful to partner with God and partner with people. Let me give you another example of paternalism. My daughter and I went to India back in 2013. Yeah. And so I was looking forward to it. We were ministering to people in the Calpar slums and man, I'm going to help them. Mm. I get there. They've turned a slum into a legit neighborhood. They, they build their homes out of garbage. Wow. And I'm walking around going, I will never say I grew up poor again. Mm-hmm. And they were a part of the untouchable caste in India. So there's really no hopes for upward mobility because karma says, well, you deserve this life because what you did in your previous life, which is a great excuse, right? To not help folks. Anyway, <laughs> after our time there, you know, I preached, I baptized some people, but on the plane back to America, I was like, I didn't go there to bless them. Those people blessed me. They showed me what it's like to be a Christian when there's absolutely no benefit. And they were so grateful. They were so humble. They were so loving. They were so kind. They were so godly. And I was like, God, you sent me there so that they could bless me. So that's an example of paternalism as well. And so what we want to do is be brothers and sisters and walk alongside of each other with equal dignity because we're all clothed in Christ, according to Galatians
0: 3.27. Oh, that is beautiful. And and it is, I think we, most of us as Americans live in such a, you know, even some of the poor of us live in such a heightened sense of privilege that because we just have no idea how how really how poor it can be like the people who live in the slums of India. You know, we have a lot of benefits here that we take for granted.
1: And listen to this too, Missy. Mm-hmm. Research showed there were a, a group of uh, poor people who came from Mexico to the United States. While they were in Mexico, they didn't deal with like anxiety. They didn't deal with depression. But when they got here and then the next generation, their kids start dealing with anxiety and depression. And a lot of times that slower pace of life actually allows you to enjoy life and relationships that when you are scarce for food and you sit down to eat and you don't have time to look at Instagram to compare yourself to what you don't have or what nobody else has because you're so busy trying to actually live. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times our modern financial conveniences strip us of some capacities to really know God because we rely on God. No, I agree. Yeah.
0: I went up to the mountains the other day just to have some quiet time and be by myself. And it took me a solid hour of fighting the urge to go back down the mountain because I had no signal. I had no connectivity. (sighs) And I was panicking over what am I missing? What if somebody needs to reach me and so on? And and really how addicted to the connectivity I had become. It took me about an hour to get over it. And then I really enjoyed the peaceful time up there in the mountains by myself. It was great. But you're right. Those conveniences can, I think, also make us blind to the effect that we are having on people in our community. And so another really great book that you wrote is called The Good Life. Love that book. And if everybody's listening, you got to get that book too. Uh, But one of my favorite quotes from that book is that healing can only happen if we are willing to act. I love that quote. I highlighted it. I tweeted it. I said, what are some... So I wanted to ask you, what are some practical actions that we can take individually to create a positive impact when it comes to relating to other people who might be different from us racially or socioeconomically. you know give us some tools yeah. like some practical tools that we can employ in the community, at the grocery store, at work, at church. you know I, I personally want to see differently, I want to act differently and I want to love differently. So help me help the person listening understand how we can do that.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a phenomenal question. Let me give an example. So I didn't grow up with my dad, and when I became a dad, I was like, I want to be the best dad there could ever be. I want my children to know that I love them. Like, my dad didn't go to any football games for middle school, high school, college, or the pros. So when my kids were small, both my daughter and my son, I would volunteer to go read in their classes. There was a couple of reasons why I would. Number one is I wanted my kids to know that I love them. That was the main thing. So I did that all the way from kindergarten to sixth grade. After sixth grade, my kids are like, you're done, dude. You're done. <laughs> but in my daughter's class in third grade, um, I was reading, and Max Lucado writes these incredible kids' books. And one of them was about these people called the Wimmicks Okay. And so I'm reading a book and I I would always just start crying because it was just so powerful. And the kids were like, Mr. Gray, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. It's like, Jesus (laughs) made my heart soft. Anyway, so I get done reading, and whenever I would leave class, I would hold my daughter and I would say, I love you, and I'd give her a kiss on the forehead. And I would say bye. And then she would say bye. Well, after one time we did that, and as I was walking out of the classroom, another kid said, by dad. And he oh. ran and he hugged me. Oh. I hugged him back and I ran out of the classroom and I just started bawling. Oh man. And here's why. God let me know at that moment, I wasn't there just for my kids. I was there for the kids who didn't have a dad. Oh, That's how we make a difference is we say, God, where is there a hurt? And where's there a need? And let me feel that need. Let me be healing to that hurt. And here's what what happens is in healing another, we're healed. And so we have to look strategically for random acts of kindness. Um, We started a grocery store that's free. We've made over 300,000 meals for people during COVID. Another way that we impact the culture is we believe education is very important. If a kid does not learn to read by third grade, their chances of going to prison skyrocket. Yes. And so we provide backpack meals for our schools. We've made over 143,000 of them in 10 years. We started a leadership training. We started tutoring. There's all types of things like that that you can do. At our church, we have been a liaison between the police and the community. And so there are multiple, multiple ways that you can get involved. Secondly, I want to challenge uh, people, particularly in the corporate world. I want to challenge you to do business ethically. I don't understand how a company like Wells Fargo can make thousands of fake accounts. Cook the books. And no one goes to jail. But yet, if your name is Jose and you live in the Mexican part of Las Vegas and you have just a little bit of drugs, you're going under the jail. So right. so lead and enact justice where you are. Call out wrong for what it is, right? And mm-hmm. even the subprime lending fiasco to people who got hurt were the little people. right. And so we need everybody to play a part, right? That's really, really important. And then, you know, love the person right in front of you. Be willing to seek to understand before being understood.
0: I think one of the most important things that was impressed upon me years ago by a friend was that every single person you meet has pain, has trauma, has something that that hurt them. You know, there's a reason why people act the way they do. And Instead of assuming that, you know, find out why and listen with empathy and see how you can help. Yes. And and whoever, you know, whoever's driving on the freeway behind you and makes you mad, they've got issues too. They've got things going on in their life, you know, and can you pray for them instead of cursing them out? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, how can you make a conscious decision to say, I'm going to act with love rather than react in anger? Uh, You know, those are some of the things also, you know, I think we can do practically in every single situation that we're in. So, you know, also, I I definitely want to encourage people to start learning from you by reading your books and, you know, following you on Instagram, because you, you you know, your work ethic that you talked about, you know, is very real, because you are constantly putting out amazing content to help people see things in a new way. What drives you to do that on a daily basis? You know, Because you're, you're really active in putting out so much good content. You know, how do you stay motivated to do that all the time?
1: Uh, I guess the best way I can answer that is this way. How can I not when Jesus has done so much for me? Mm, so good. Um, in light of how he's loved me when I didn't love myself, in light of how he has forgiven me when I didn't deserve it, in light of how merciful he's been, I didn't know that there was an option not to partner with him so that people can come to know him and to make him known. I believe that Jesus is going to make all things new, fully and completely. But until he does, he's left me here with the Holy Spirit's power, with his playbook called The Bible, and a group of teammates made up of men and women of all ethnicities and social economic classes to literally be his hands and his feet in the world. And I just want to do my little part.
0: Oh, that's awesome. So one thing I'm going to ask you that I'm going to ask everybody who comes on my show is tell me something in the last 12 months that you've done that you consider to be bold, even for Derwin Gray, like with all the things that you've done in the past 12 months, or it could be longer. But what is some really bold move that you did that was scary and you did it anyway?
1: Ooh, within the last 12 months, bold and scary. You know, I would say... What I did is I have by the by the time the pandemic is over, I have written I would have written four books. Wow. And I don't know how God has managed to do that. I got asked to do a book for Tyndale that'll be out for Black History Month called How to Heal the Racial Divide. And I have no idea how I'm almost finished with that book. Every week I write a new chapter. And with a church that's booming and exploding, like we hire so many staff. I don't even know who I'm like, Oh, so you work here. So I'm meeting everybody. right? And so from that perspective, that has been like, man, yeah, that's, that's bold.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Because that, that's, you know, that's writing a book is a hard, is a hard thing to do. It sounds like you're you're definitely being empowered to get these messages out into the world because they are needed in this day and age. So I just want to say, man, I feel like I have been to church today. Thank you so much you. for sharing your passion and your wisdom and your insights into something that's, that is affecting literally all of us. And those tools and those ways that we can you know find jesus and and then also be Jesus to the people around us, so I, I thank you so much for everything that you shared with us and all the things that you're doing it's just it 's such a such a blessing to me personally
1: well, thank you so much and before I depart off of your epic new show, I would be amiss if i didn't say this that as a female executive in the tech world, you are Creating a roadmap for other young ladies to know that they can be VPs and COOs and CEOs and that they could be C-suite leaders as well, that God has called them. And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do the show is I wanted to affirm in you your leadership capacity that they're going to be young ladies going, hey, I can run the company one day.
0: Oh, that means the world to me. And, I, and if I can inspire some young women to do, uh, you know, to work hard and not give up and not be intimidated and to overcome the hurdles and to remember that, you know, God has gifted them for a reason and that they have, they have special gifts and things that they can do for this world to make it better, you know, that if I can do that, then it will be a life well lived.
1: Well, you're so doing Thank
0: you. Major. Thank you so much, Darwin. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Whoo Pastor Derwin dropped some truth on us. I can't even tell you how awesome that was for me to sit there and absorb that in person. I mean, that part about being a dad for the kids who have no dad, oh, that wrecked me. And I love that he gave us some really practical ways in which we can make a difference in our community. We need to speak out against injustice wherever we find it. We need to help to educate kids, help them learn how to read by third grade so that, you know, they don't end up in prison, feed the hungry, contribute and serve at local food pantries, and most importantly, love the person right in front of you. This could be at the doctor's office, in the grocery store line. This could be at the gas station. You know, this is how we can help, and it is in healing others that we can be healed, Seek to understand another person before you seek to be understood. These are all just such great practical ways. Thank you, Pastor Derwin, for educating us. Thank you for all these practical tips. Thank you for sharing your heart with us. Thank you be, for being such a powerful voice in the world for hope and healing and reconciliation. Please follow Pastor Derwin on social media. He is everywhere. Derwin Gray. And uh, he puts out tons of great content every single day. He is definitely worth a follow. And please pick up one or two or more of his books. He's a prolific writer. His newest book, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church, is out. It is awesome. I'm also super partial to the book that he wrote right before that called The Good Life, What Jesus Teaches About Finding True Happiness. So good. Uh, I highly recommend his books. Thank you for listening. And if this conversation blessed you, please share it on social media. Please subscribe. We can be found on iTunes and Spotify. And please let your friends know because listening to the words of Pastor Derwin Gray, is definitely worth 40 minutes of your time. Take care. Have a great day. This is Missy signing off.